0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Robert C. Hughes, a professor of legal studies and business ethics at Wharton. We are speaking with him about his paper titled Egalitarian Provision of Necessary Medical Treatment. Robert, welcome and thank you for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you so much for having me here today. So in your paper, Robert, you you Explore a topic that hits the news headlines regularly these days. It's the need to provide necessary medical treatment in an egalitarian way
1: to everyone, regardless of their capacity to pay. What inspired you to study this topic? Well, when I started working on this topic, I was a postdoc in the bioethics department of the National Institutes of Health. And I was looking for a topic that would be interested, of interest both to uh, philosophers, that's my academic background, and to the general public and to bioethicists. Um, my graduate advisor and I, Shauna Shifrin, spoke a little bit about this, and she raised a very interesting question. Suppose we agree that we should have universal health insurance in this country. Of course, we don't agree, but suppose we agreed that. Um, should we allow people to top up with supplemental insurance or um, buy – private services in other ways? Or should we have the same for everyone? And I thought this is an important question. It's an interesting question. And I don't know what I think. I don't know what the right answer is. And I needed to turn to some more abstract principles of moral philosophy and political philosophy in order to find an answer. So you write in your
0: paper that different countries, especially Canada, the UK, Australia, have all, they've all dealt with this issue in different ways. But what are some of the pros and cons to the
1: approaches they have taken? So the British model, which is also the Australian model, is to have a, a, a public system uh, that covers everybody, uh, but to allow people to buy uh, private supplemental insurance. And uh, it works differently in those two countries, but in both the UK and the Australia, there are quite a, and Australia, there are quite a lot of people who buy... Uh, supplemental private insurance. Canada does, does things some th- somewhat differently. Uh, there's a they have Medicare for all. That is what their national health insurance system is called. It's called Medicare. And um, though they haven't completely outlawed private insurance, there's some obstacles. So at the federal level. Um, there's uh, limits on uh, what payments doctors can take. If they take public insurance, they can only take public insurance. And at the provincial level, some provinces have prohibited uh, coverage that duplicates uh, coverage that the public system covers, uh, and that prevents people from using private insurance to skip the queue for things like joint replacements. So there's a pressure in Canada towards a single-tier system where everyone is getting the same quality of care. What are the pros and uh, cons of these approaches? Well, the big benefit of the UK or the Australian system is uh, is autonomy. Uh, we think that people should be free to spend their money on, on cars or vacations or big houses. Why shouldn't they be able to spend their money on their health? That seems like a good thing to spend your money on. Um, the benefit of the Canadian system has mostly been understood in terms of the p- political pressure to improve care for the less well-off. So if everyone is getting the same, uh, the uh, wealthier people who have somewhat more political influence are likely to use that influence to make sure that that universal system is a really good system. My work brings out uh, an advantage to the Canadian approach, broadly speaking, that uh, hasn't been recognized before. Uh, And that is that it actually addresses a liberty concern. Mm. If um, money controls access to certain expensive but life-saving or otherwise medically necessary treatments, then for people who don't have enough money to pay for those treatments, the ability to get it depends on whether they can persuade someone to give them money. And the result is that um, individuals and private organizations uh, with money that they could choose to share if they wanted end up having uh, power over other people. Uh, And we see this actually on social media. Uh, people on social media in the United States uh, sometimes post requests for you know, a, a, a use my GoFundMe to cover my expensive medical treatment and whether they have an appealing presence on social media might affect whether they live or die. If you have an egalitarian health care system, a single tier health care system, that kind of dependence and that kind of potential domination uh, doesn't appear.
0: So what are some of the philosophical issues that this brings up? Because as you said, your background is, you are a philosopher. That's right.
1: So So another philosophical issue this brings up uh, is stability. Uh, Not so much the empirical question about empirically what policies lead to stable societies, but uh, as a moral matter, uh, when uh, should people have complete fidelity to the law? Uh, There's a moral dilemma that people face when they can't afford health care that they need or their dependents need. Um, and uh, they uh, may face a dilemma about whether to steal in order to get it. There's actually a very famous psych experiment where people are asked about what's called the Heinz dilemma. Mm-hmm. Heinz is a man whose wife is dying and there's only one drug that can save her and there's only one druggist who sells that drug. This is a hypothetical, of course. And uh, the druggist is this cost, uh, charging 10 times what it costs to make the drug uh, and he's the one who makes the drug. So it's 10 times what it cost him. Uh, And Heinz goes to the druggist and says, I'll pay you half now. And I want, can I buy the, can I owe you the rest? I will pay you. And the druggist says, no, I want the money now. Well, now there's only one way to save, uh, to save his wife. Uh, And it's called the Heinz dilemma because it's a dilemma and reasonable people disagree about what Heinz should do in this situation. The Heinz dilemma is gone Mm. if money doesn't control access to genuinely life-saving medical care. Uh, So there's a way in which the uh, moral duty to respect others' property, the moral duty to um, uh, obey the law generally is strengthened if we have egalitarian access to medical care.
0: So uh, looking at some of the major takeaways from your research, could you highlight that for our listeners and also... How, how do your findings have a bearing on the debate on Medicare for All that's going on right here in the United States in the run-up to the presidential election next a- year?
1: Absolutely. So the central finding of, of this article is that it, it's morally necessary to make sure that people's finances don't affect their ability to get truly medically necessary treatment. That means things that prolong life significantly, things that address serious disabilities, things that address serious forms of suffering. Um, it, if some people can afford private hospital rooms and other people can't, that's fine. Um, so what are the implications of this? First, we should have universal health coverage. We don't have that yet in this country. Uh, and second, if we can't afford uh, to pay for a medically necessary treatment for everybody who needs it, um, then we might need to take some, uh, some very expensive medically necessary treatments off the market to prevent this kind of private dependence from happening. Um, What are some ways of uh, achieving this? Uh, One way of achieving this is to abolish uh, private insurance and institute Medicare for all. Uh, That is uh, one of the policy uh, positions uh, uh, that's being considered in the current uh, Democratic uh, primary. Um, uh, I should clarify, uh, the the, the debate is whether to abolish private insurance for uh, things that Medicare for all would would cover, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not the only possibility. Another possibility would be to have a system of subsidized private health insurance mm-hmm. uh, where uh, the health insurance uh, is available to everybody. The government makes sure, makes sure that everyone can afford it. And the insurance companies are competing on price, competing on convenience, but not competing on what services are offered. Or maybe competing on things like whether they cover private hospital rooms, but not on whether they cover life-saving things or not. All right.
0: uh- now, what are your, the implications of your research for government regulators? Uh, and what role can they play in ensuring that private citizens don't have the power? To make life and death, or sickness, or health and health decisions for people who can't afford to pay for it.
1: Well, I think the change needs to happen at a a legislative level. It's not something that someone who's in an executive agency currently is in a position to to do anything about right now. Um, uh, But there are again two two main approaches that could be taken, and one would be to have a a single payer system, and the other uh, another. I suppose there's a third option. Uh, a, a, a second option is, as I just discussed, to have subsidized uh, s- a single uh, su- subsidized private insurance where there's not a single p- payer, there's multiple payers. And a third would be to just have a national health service. I-, I doubt that's what we want in this country. I think the first two of those options seem to fit more with American culture.
0: Right. And do, do you feel that if the state does provide uh, public insurance, that some people should be Allowed to opt out or to buy supplementary insurance or to pay for some services out of pocket? No. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the main conclusion of the research. It's in, in order to prevent this kind of private dependence, we need to uh, make sure that necessary care is is provided to everyone without regard, without ability to pay. I suppose if there were, you know, we had private systems, and I, I don't suppose this would be fine. If we had a public option, this is one another candidate... Uh, right. option in the debate. If we had a public option and private health insurance option and they covered the same services and everyone could afford whichever one they wanted and we said, do you want public insurance? Do you want right. private insurance? And we let people choose. That sounds great. That sounds, that sounds fine. Right. Uh, but is a problem if there's life-saving treatment that you can only get by paying for it uh, with, uh, with private money.
0: Be- and, and that's because it would not be equitable if it were done in that way.
1: I don't want to think of it in terms of equity. I want to think of it in terms of power. Right. Uh, people who can't afford the the, the expensive life-saving things... Are dependent on whether they can get the charity from a relative, from strangers on social media, from a wealthy individual or a charitable organization. And there's a problem with that dependence. Actually, there's probably multiple problems with that dependence. I'd
0: I'd like to come back to the question of power, which I think is very fascinating. But before that, I I wonder what implications does your research have for other stakeholders in healthcare, like uh, private insurance firms? healthcare providers or the pharma companies, uh, what do you think leaders in these industries could do to support egalitarian provision of healthcare for necessary medical treatment?
1: I think there's one very important thing that they can do, and this goes for corporate leaders, it goes for uh, leaders in, in the nonprofit sector, it goes for leaders in unions, uh, and that is to support the, uh, a good public policy. And as, as we've discussed, there's multiple options for good public policy, so there's certainly room for a lot of disagreement. But it's very important that leaders in all of these sectors uh, not stand in the way of universal health care. Uh, that they not advocate for a tiered system Mm. and that they instead advocate for one of the different options. And there are several options uh, that would uh, make sure that everyone is getting the same care, at least where it comes to life-saving things and other things that are genuinely, seriously necessary. Um, That's the main thing that can be done. I don't think that private action alone can solve this problem Mm. because the problem is – private individuals and private organizations having the discretion to decide who gets which things they need to survive. Uh, Certainly, there are important ethical questions in the system we have about what to do with that power when you have it. Of course, charity is great. Of course, it's uh, desirable for pharmaceutical companies to make thoughtful decisions about how they price their medications. Um, that's an extremely complicated and difficult topic. Uh, but ultimately, the government is going to uh, have to be involved. But of course, in our society, public advocacy is part of our system and an important part of our system.
0: Right. Now, coming back to the question of power that you brought up before, so to the degree that you know, egalitarian access to medical treatment is a matter of power, Do you believe that a bottom-up approach uh, involving local communities and unions, et cetera, would provide better social outcomes than a top-down approach?
1: So there are two issues here, and one of them is how care is provided, and the other is who decides what's covered for everybody and how is that decision made. I think it might work very well to have um, local organizations of all sorts involved in the provision of treatment. Uh, But the decisions about what care gets provided to everybody, at least when we're talking about necessary things, not things like private hospital rooms, um, those decisions uh, need to be made at a national level. Um, Let's imagine that this was instead made at a local government level. So Philadelphia, New York, Scranton might all have a different list of things that they cover then whether you get to move to New York or Philadelphia or Scranton might affect whether you get what your health needs. Um, And since money affects what city you can live in, the problem of private dependence just reappears at a different level. It's whether someone will let you move in with them, whether you've got a relative, um, whether you can get a donation, you could have a GoFundMe for let me move to New York and get on their wonderful local health plan. (laughs) The, The same problem arises. So we really need this to be at a national level where we make decisions. These are the medically necessary treatments that we're going to make sure that everyone can get. Sure.
0: Uh, now, you write in your paper that some people, especially those who have good private insurance, may be uncomfortable with uh, your research and its findings. Uh, what could you say to make them a little
1: more comfortable with your arguments? So two things. One, and I would say this mainly to the um, people in the United States, um, Think about what the effects would be of uh, instituting uh, universal egalitarian healthcare in the United States. Is that going to make your health care different? It might, depending on how we institute it. Could it be disruptive? Sure, it could be disruptive. But is it likely to reduce the quality? Probably not very much, if at all. Uh, we can certainly afford in this country to provide a, a good level of health care to everybody. A second point has to do with social stability. Think back to that issue of the Heinz dilemma and the fact that right now there are people who, this for whom this isn't hypothetical. They actually do face uh, a choice of getting money in some illegal way, whether it's stealing or something else, uh, um, and doing without health care for themselves, doing without health care for their children, doing without health care for their spouses. Um Uh, Of course, the threat of the criminal legal system is a deterrent, uh, but we would have more social stability if people didn't face that choice, if everybody got necessary medical care on an equal basis. Um, I think we all have an interest in uh, social stability. I think we all have an interest in people having respect for law. uh, And it's a lot easier to have respect for law when we don't face these kinds of dilemmas. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Uh, one fa- last question Robert and that 's uh, what future questions
1: of study do you have in mind to build upon this research so one of the projects that i 'm working on now is on farc- uh sorry on uh, pricing in the pharmaceutical uh, industry um, As we all know, uh, there have been recently some pharmaceutical companies that have raised prices on certain uh, drugs and devices in spectacular ways um, that created some, some scandal in the media. And I'm trying to develop an account of fair pharmaceutical pricing that on the one hand acknowledges the outrage and recognizes the outrage is in many cases valid, but also recognizes that pharmaceutical companies spend a lot of money on drug development. It's an extremely risky activity. Um, it's necessary to try dozens of candidate drugs in order to get one that works and is sellable. Um, so uh, companies need to uh, make back their research costs and they may need to make a fair profit. How do we reconcile these um, uh, there's an ethical question, which is the main thing that I'm struggling with right now. Uh, but the account of just health care that I've already developed has implications for how the government should respond. Um, there are two possible responses. One is to regulate drug pricing so that whether people can get what they need. Uh, doesn't uh, depend on the discretionary decisions of pharmaceutical executives. The other would be to subsidize uh, the purchase of uh, medically necessary pharmaceuticals, and then that wouldn't necessarily involve direct regulation of uh, pricing. It might, Um, uh, but that would be another way of making sure that people get what they need, um, regardless of uh, what decisions uh, individual uh, companies' executives make.
0: Well, that sounds like a very exciting area for study. I hope we'll get a chance to talk about that
1: sometime in the future. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me here today.
0: Uh, Thanks, Robert. Really enjoyed speaking to you about your research. Thank you for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. It was a pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.